Welcome to the Base Path Podcast. I'm your host, Dan Guttenplan. Today's guest is well-known in baseball circles throughout New England, a former 20-year college baseball coach and more recently a pitching coordinator for a minor league affiliate for the Seattle Mariners. Todd Carroll served as the MIT pitching coach from 2012 to 2022, a stretch in which the engineers won three NUMAC championships and advanced to five NCAA regionals. Todd, thanks so much for joining us in studio. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's exciting. And I know you have an exciting event coming up, so we're going to talk about that. It's uh, Boston Pitching Congress. It's maybe possibly the first time there's a purely pitching clinic like this in New England. Tell us about how that idea came about for the Boston Pitching Congress. Yeah, I had been to the ABCA, to what they do at Mohegan, and all those people do great jobs, but there's never been a, a pitching-only one. And there was a, a form of it, they called it Pitchapalooza down in Tennessee for years, and that kind of ran its course. And it was a lot on the biomechanics side and and kind of the, the, the nerdy side of pitching, for lack of a better phrase. And I wanted to do something that helped high school coaches and travel coaches because pitching has changed so much just in my career in the 20 years I've been a pitching coach, it doesn't resemble what it was when I came into it. And that can be intimidating. And when you have high school coaches that are working their butts off for four grand a year, to be able to give back to that is exciting. And then when I got home, I'm home for the off season after I spent, I was the pitching coach in Arizona this summer with the Mariners. And I sat down with Jack McLaughlin at extra innings over in Watertown and he runs Boston prime. And I've done some stuff with them in the past. And I said, hey, why don't we try to do this? And he goes, all right, what do you need from us? And so they've been really supportive over there. Jack and Steve McCarthy, they do a great job with that program. So they, they've been our co-collaborators so far on this project. And then we said about, all right, can we get speakers? So we, I'm very fortunate that the Mariners were very supportive of the project. We have five of us coming from the Mariners contingent. Would have been six. Quinn Cleary, who was with the Phillies, was originally going to speak. He's since been hired by the Mariners, so he'll be on assignment that weekend and not actually in town. Quinn's a, a local kid from Newton that, that pitched at Yale that's now an assistant pitching coordinator in our organization. We're excited to have him on board. So the first call was John Casey. John's always, I've spoke with him at the Mass Baseball Coaches, and he's like, yep, whatever you need. And so then we had the, started to get the college tie-ins, and people seemed excited by the idea. We were able to get the MBCA, the Mass Baseball Coaches Association, to send out an email to their whole membership, and we did a discount for them to get them in. The whole idea was not to, to really make a profit off this, just to have a fun day to get everybody together. And there'll be a couple charities. We'll donate some money to Watertown Little League, give something back to the MBCA for this, and everybody can have a beer after and get to know each other. I think it'll be a huge success. Yeah, absolutely. And we'll we'll go over the specifics. There are still tickets available. So we know in our audience, there are a lot of high school baseball coaches, a lot of travel coaches. So if you are interested in going to this, the date is December 2nd. It's in Watertown at Donahue's Bar and Grill. It's going to be 8 a.m. to 12.30, and it could be up to about 65 coaches there who are interested in learning more from these experts in the industry. Some of the other guests, Sean Haviland, who is a Red Sox director of pitching, like you mentioned, John Casey, and Nate Cole from Harvard. He's kind of one of the headliners, too. Now, one of the things I want to go back to, you had mentioned the way in which pitching is taught so much differently now than it was 20 years ago, and it's just totally different in terms of coaching philosophies. How has it changed in your view? Well, when I first started coaching, really the only measuring device we had was a radar gun. And now when you see 
Hawkeye in Major League Stadiums and TrackMan devices in Rapsodo. We can measure a lot more things. So therefore, you measure what you prioritize. So that's going to be it's going to look a lot different to a JV high school coach than it is at the AAA level. But there's some commonality there, and I think the more that we can pull back the curtain on that, I think it's going to help them. And I think sometimes too, we can dig in. As I'm probably right on the fringe. I'm 46 years old, so like. Coaches that might be older, they're, they're stubborn. Oh, I, this new analytics, I don't like all that stuff. Well, you're going to like it if it helps your pitchers get better. If you're winning more baseball games, you're going to like anything that helps you do that. So um, we're fortunate. Our Major League Video Coordinator with the Mariners runs a company called Baseball Connect. And basically what they do is a free platform that kind of pulls the curtain back and explains some of these phrases that people – sometimes I, I was doing a, a pitching group last week over in Watertown, and – I asked the kids, how many of you have thrown on a rap soto before? And they all raised their hand. And I said, how many of you knew what anything meant on that other than the velocity? And none of them put their hands up. All right, so that's an $11,000 machine that's not giving them everything. Right. And, and we can learn that. And I think as long as we don't get intimidated, and I told our speakers, we don't want this to be a contest of, like, who's smarter than the other. It's, I want this to be a contest of who can give the most to, to young coaches and help them. So we're going to try to do it in, like, 15 to 18-minute segments. That's the, the TED Talk format. I think that's the way people learn best is in those shortened versions, and, and we're pretty excited about it. So it's a it's an opportunity for high school coaches to learn how to better use the technology that uh, is available to coaches, or, or are you saying, hey – some of you might not have a budget for some of this. Like, here are some other ways that you can tweak mechanics and things like that for your pitchers. Without a doubt. Jake Witt, who is our Modesto pitching coach, he's coming in. He worked at Driveline. Obviously, was at the front end of technology. But his his speech is going to be on player development on a budget. What can, he, what can you do? How much of the Driveline system, the modern pitching theory system, can you incorporate without all the bells and whistles and without all the technology. So we're excited for that. I mean, Nate Cole is going to talk about their bullpen routines at Harvard, what they do to, in their pregame bullpens and things like that. I think that's really consequential. If you ask a high school kid when he starts warming up before a start, half of them don't know. They just say, hey, whenever coach tells me. Sean Havlin with the Red Sox is coming, and that's, he's a former player of mine, and I always reference him. When you ask Sean that question as a sophomore in college, he would say 33 minutes before a start. And when I went to see him pitch in, in A-ball in California, 33 minutes before the start, he'd pop his head out of the dugout. That was his routine, and he was he was beholden to it, and he wasn't going to change. And that routine doesn't have to be perfect, but it has to exist for every pitcher, and they have to be consistent because if your preparation level isn't consistent, you can't expect consistent results. And these kids come in challenging environments now, too, sometimes when you're playing in a tournament at, at a four-field complex and you don't get – to go through a whole hour and a half stretching routine because you might have just come over from the other field or if you're down in Georgia driving through that crazy traffic at the WWBA. So you have to prioritize, all right, what what three things do I have to do before every appearance? All right, and then what are three things that I'd like to do? All right, and if I don't feel good that day, can I still compete or am I just going to check out because I, I didn't feel great that day because we got to the park late? Right. Yeah, I, was, I, I can't remember who it was like. Schilling or Beckett or one of these Red Sox pitchers was like, you're going to feel good like one out of every, every five starts and the other four, you've just got to figure out what's working. How do you grind through it? How do you get outs when you don't have your best stuff? Because it's so rare to have your best stuff in, in at the professional level, at least. I mean, as a pitcher, your, your feelings can't matter. Right. 
they matter very much off the field. But I think that's in, in modern coaching. We do a much better job of that than we did 20, 25 years ago of taking care of the whole athlete, especially at the college level. They do a great job of in, investigating mental health with student athletes and things like that. But those feelings can't be on the mound. You have a task to accomplish and your right. teammates are counting on that task. And the odds that you're going to feel perfect are highly against you, especially in New England where it might be 42 and snowing on that Saturday that you've been prepping all week for. Right. So what are you going to do? Are you going to just go in the tank because you don't feel good that day? Well, the other dugout's going to be pretty happy about that. So learning how to compete when you don't feel the best. So that's we'll have people talking about things like that. So that's what I wanted was an all analytics four hours. I think people will be asleep. <laughs> yeah. We want some of it, but we want we want to blend the old school and the new school as well. Yeah, I thought it was a good point that you made about the guys at these Georgia tournaments uh, where you are bouncing around from field to field. You're in the car a lot. You're, you're on the road anyway, uh, which is something a little bit different for high school kids sometimes. So they don't know how to handle, hey, I'm sleeping in a hotel. What do I need to do in terms of bedtimes and nutrition? And how do I stay on a schedule that's going to allow me to be very productive? And I think by giving these coaches these resources and this information, you can kind of empower the players because you're on your high school team and then you're on your travel team and then you're on an elite showcase team. And you've, as a player now, you have to take a lot more responsibility than when you had maybe one coach, maybe one Legion coach, and then it was they're kind of coordinating and they know how many innings did you throw your last starter, how many pitches did you throw. Now I feel like the players have to really take individual ownership for their own workloads and their training because they have different coaches across all the different teams they play for. Yeah, I think player development at the professional level, it takes a village. And we collaborate way more on the player development of our pro guys than I had ever collaborated in my career. You know, when I worked at MIT, Coach Barlow was great. He gave me a lot of autonomy. But with that comes, you don't have anybody to bounce stuff off of. So you, you settle into, not your way or the highway, but the, you settle into certain patterns. Right. And yeah. so one of our speakers is Kevin Curtin, who's now the pitching coach at MIT. And I played for his dad in high school at Burlington High. And he's you know, third or fourth all-time in wins in the state of Massachusetts. And he, he was in year 41, I think, when I played for him. So he wasn't going to change very much. But by the same token, it was different. You played for your high school team, and then I played in the summer. It was Bobby Macaluso for Legion, who's with the North Shore now in the NECBL. That's just what you did. Now these kids have access to way more information. It can be intimidating to them. It can be intimidating to parents. It can be intimidating to high school coaches. And I think if we can come out of this event with that spirit of collaboration, like, hey, call you got an ace. He's pretty good. Call his travel coach. Get on. You guys don't have to be enemies. Right, because most people that do this aren't getting rich off it, so they're they're doing it with the best interest of the student athlete in mind. So the the more that they can collaborate and and help each other, the better off the athletes are going to be. Yeah, and I've a lot of us have been to these conferences before these clinics, and some of the bigger ones you'll have breakout groups or you'll have a few different speakers going on at once, and you kind of have to check the the schedule and figure out where you you think your time is best invested. What's, what will be the format for this? Because it's a little bit smaller with an audience of maybe 65, 70 coaches. Yeah, so we're going we're gonna to roll them out one in a row, just one at a time. There's not going to be any decisions to make between that. And then after, we're going to have a social hour where all the coaches will be present and the attendees can come up and just whatever's in their head, just pop a question. Oh, that's um, cool. And have an adult beverage or a, or a non-adult beverage out in the back of Donahue's. Uh, I think it's a pretty good spot to spend a Saturday afternoon. So, But hopefully they, that can be a little bit more casual 
and the clinic itself will be a lot of slides and, and guys showing their drills and things of that nature. But then afterwards, say, hey, I've always wondered about this, or you brought this up and I found this interesting. Can you can you go a little bit further on that? And I hope there's just a lot of organic con- conversation that comes out of that. Oh yeah, baseball coaches will love that. That's that's the time they'll love is hey, let's talk. Let me follow up with you about what I heard and talk to you about your experiences. That'll be great. I want to talk to you about your coaching career too, but let me one more question about the pitching Congress. What should coaches? This is Boston Pitching Con- Congress, December second, eight a.m. to twelve thirty, Donahue's Bar and Grill in Watertown. If a coach at this point would like to attend, what, what should they do? You can go to Extra Innings website, Extra Innings Watertown. They're under their camps and clinics. If for some reason you have any trouble, just shoot me an email, and it's just tcarroll at mariners.com. Okay. That's tcarroll at mariners.com. Correct. Any trouble finding it, I, I will direct you, and we'll, we'll make sure you get taken care of. Yeah, and I, I had mentioned everybody's kind of aware of you in the New England baseball circles, obviously. A great career at MIT. Uh, how, how did you find your experience switching to the professional baseball this year with the Seattle Mariners? What was that like? It was certainly different. Not having other responsibilities was unbelievable. I've, I've taught my whole career. I was a middle school teacher while I was at MIT. Uh, I'm teaching while I'm home for the off season. So being able to have every single hour of your day spent on task is unbelievable. When you're a part of an athletic department, you're part of a greater whole, just like as a, as a baseball organization, you're part of a greater whole. But being able to just meet about what's going to help our Mariners players get better as opposed to, hey, the field hockey team did a great job fundraising and all that stuff's great, but it's not necessarily helping you, your baseball players develop. So right. having it just be all baseball all day was great. Our director of baseball projects, which is our head of kind of our technology division, is uh, David Hesslink, who played for me at MIT. He was a draft pick out of our our program in 2017. So being able to reconnect and work with him was certainly exciting. Being around Major League Spring Training the first time was really cool. Hanging out in the bullpen with Stephen Vogt, who's now the Indians uh, Guardians manager. Doing that for the first time with my nephew in the stands, coaching a Major League game was was pretty awesome. And then then it just becomes baseball. So spring training's a little bit overwhelming that first time. There's people going everywhere, and there's fans, and all the it's, it's the pitching coordinator will give you a, a guy's name and say, "Hey, you got him in an hour on the pen, and you you better know everything about him." <laughs> yeah. That's a little different than when you've recruited your whole staff and you've known them for two years before you get to campus. You know what you're doing rolling into practice. So there's a lot of prep work in there. Felt like you could never get ahead, but then it's really slowed down and extended spring training. Um, and then once we got into our season, the Arizona Complex League, it just felt like baseball. It was 56 games. We had a good run. We finished a couple games out of first. But it was really fun. It was fun going through the different cycles. We drafted, I think, eight pitchers. So they all started with us. So seeing them on their their first couple weeks of their college careers was really exciting. So a lot of exciting stuff. And, and I think the Mariners, from a pitching standpoint, it's a really exciting time. I mean, we debuted nine rookie pitchers this year. Wow. A team that finished two games out of the playoffs, so that's a lot of young, controllable arms that have done some really, really good things. And so, it doesn't happen by accident. And I have a, I have a great group of colleagues to go to work with every day, and I'm excited to show a lot of them off. I'm really excited that a lot of them chose to come spend this weekend in the middle of December for the middle of the winter and hang out with us in Boston for a couple of days. Yeah, not not the best time of year to be in Boston, but that's great that they're uh, joining. How did the opportunity come about for you from going from MIT to the Mariners? Was it that your former player drafted there? Or? David was the link. He had he had called a couple of years ago about a scouting job, and I wasn't really ready to get off the field. And 
when I called him this time, it was one of our graduating seniors was looking to go into that that field. And it was Graham Cartwright, who had 10 home runs, hit 400 last year for them, had a great senior year at MIT. And he had interned a couple summers with the Padres. And David had kind of gone down a path where the Mariners had taken him with the idea of him going in the front office eventually. But he pitched for a year before he did that because that experience kind of put him over the average, like, analytical nerd. Yeah. And so when he was coming out, David was a special case. He was son of a Navy sub-captain, 36 ACT. He's the all-time winningest pitcher at MIT. He's, so he, he does a few things well. Yeah. And he had offers from the Mariners, the Giants, the Rays, and there's probably somebody I'm leaving out. But the Mariners said, hey, we'll draft you, and you can play that first year. And I remember vividly sitting, he was eating breakfast, and he was like, what should I do? And I said, if you're asking me, then I'm not going to let you go anywhere but Seattle because that's that's a separator for you. If you want him, what do you want to do? Is he wants to be a GM? He wants to run an organization. They'll never just say you're you're an MIT kid. You're a former player that happened to be from MIT, and, and you know he had a classmate that was an eighth round or two, and that legitimized it a little bit for him. So we had the conversation about Graham, and then Graham ended up going with the Padres. He stuck with them, and he's working for them, and very happy and, and doing a great job. And David said, hey, you know, our pitching department got raided. I know you've had an interest in the past. Do you want to talk to our pitching coordinator? And it's funny, it just came up in my feed. It was, it was a year ago Friday that I talked to the pitching coordinator, Max Wiener. We talked for about two hours, the first conversation, and I'm like, ooh, they kind of do pitching the way I want to do pitching. Like There was, there was a lot of commonality there. Matt Pierpont, who was the assistant pitching coordinator at that time, called me like an hour and a half later. And this is all on a Friday night, and I'm like, okay, this is kind of moving fairly fast. Yeah. So then the following week, the Tuesday before Thanksgiving, I was on a Zoom with the two of them and Trent Blank, who's the major league pitching strategist. Then Thanksgiving came, and you sweat it out for a couple of days, and you're wondering which way it's going. And then that following Monday, they offered. And it was just right place, right time, organization I felt comfortable with. Obviously, having a former player in the front office doesn't hurt, so you know that you got at least a North Star or somebody that's yeah, somebody's looking out for somebody's, somebody's, yeah. yeah, and that's always important because you never know how everybody's one bad year away from not having a contract. So Right, yeah. It's a results it, business. So that that's how it came about, and I took the job, got out there in January, and, and I haven't looked back. I've, I've loved it. I'm, I'm really, really happy with the decision. I miss a lot of the college baseball stuff and I miss being in New England full time. Obviously I'm back here for like the worst weather part of the year, but uh, um, I wouldn't, I wouldn't change it. Yeah. That's a lot of time in Arizona last year anyway. So you had plenty of good weather, I'm sure. Um, What was I going to ask you? Uh, Why did the front or the pitching department get rated? Who did they get rated by? Um, So the triple A coach went to the big leagues with the Reds became the assistant pitching coach. Double A coach went to Iowa, got his like salary doubled or, or so. Our pitching coordinator Max, who hired me, is now the pitching coach at Texas A and M. Oh wow! Our A ball pitching coach from two years ago is now the pitching coach at Grand Canyon. So people noticed that the Mariners were doing good things. And, yeah, and, and they had a history of promoting within from within. And now Matt Pierpont, who was the assistant pitching coordinator, has moved up. And other than the fact that he's a Steelers fan, he's a, he's a guy I have a tremendous amount of respect for and a great working relationship. And I'm I'm looking forward to getting back to work with him. Oh, good. And now you said this next year on the way in. We were talking about this. You're headed to the Dominican Republic for to improve your bilingual skills, but also you're going to be coaching. Yeah, so that's we have an academy like a lot of organizations do down in the Dominican. That's the, the launching point for the uh, careers of our international players. So the combination of my teaching experience and my work with younger players 
and quite frankly, I need to get better at speaking Spanish. And I think for me, immersion is going to be really, really important getting down there. I, I feel like I communicated okay with our Latin players this year. We, we did a pretty good job in development with them. But they deserve to be able to have conversations like you and I are having with their coach and without a translator app and things like that. And, and they work their tail off on, on English, and it's inspiring. A couple things. A, how hard they work on, on trying to have their English perfected and trying to get used to that. Then tr- coming from a lot of our guys are Venezuelan or Dominican, Puerto Rican, they get to Arizona. It's a t- completely different world. Right, and they're 17, 18 years old, and they friggin' love baseball, and they just attack it every day. And then they go home, and they're completely lost. Like, they don't know how to grocery shop, they don't know what a checking account is, all those things. So being able to kind of get on the front end of some of that and teach off-the-field stuff, still be on the pitching development side with some of our young guys, and and like I told our our field coordinator, I don't want to be in the Dominican for 10 years, but I think a couple of years is going to benefit on both sides. So I'm excited for it. And uh, the passion for, for baseball from our Latin players is something I didn't see coming, and it's, it's been one of the favorite parts of the job. They, they just they love baseball, and it's, it's different. Yeah, yeah. So many Latin players in the in the big leagues these days. It's a good good for you for making that commitment to making it more comfortable experience for those players because that definitely helps. Like you said, if they if they're comfortable, they're going to play better. So many guys. Those we did a story uh, just this fall on just college freshmen getting to campus and they feel like they're underwater because they're trying to keep up with the schoolwork and then and then once they get settled and they're comfortable, their their actual performance starts to improve and their talent starts to come out a little bit more. So it's good that you're willing to make that sacrifice. I think it'll still be, it won't be that much of a sacrifice because the Dominican Republic's a beautiful place. Yeah, I don't, I don't think it's a sacrifice of mine. I'm working at professional baseball every day. <laughs> yeah. I did think the piece on adjusting to, to life as a first-year student-athlete was was outstanding and overdue. And, and I don't think any coach, even the, all of us that have done it for 20 years, have a the secret sauce to it. Right. But it's the sooner you figure out all the other stuff in your life, whether it's as a pro athlete or as a student athlete, your baseball will take off because you're sleeping right, you're eating right, you're comfortable with how often you're calling home, that sort of thing. So you know, it's as true at MIT as it is at spring training. I do want to talk about MIT because I always think of like Harvard, MIT, Yale, it's just got to be so different recruiting than it would be at a state school or some of these D3 schools where you're I, a lot of these D3 schools are very high academic schools, but MIT is so specialized. You have to have the top engineers in the country that are hoping to come and then also uh, I contribute to the baseball program. How do you how do you recruit and get in guys who are going to thrive in the academic environment as well? Well, like everything in life, the, those challenges are either roadblocks or hurdles. So the good thing that you have going for you when you're MIT or Harvard or you're Yale, if you call, they're going to call back, all right, because it's a yeah. life-changing education. Obviously, admissions is a challenge, and it should be. It's supposed to be hard to get into those schools. But for those kids that are specialized, that they're they're the ones getting the 780, 800 math scores, they've been building stuff since they were 8, 9 years old. That's what they want to do. So then when you pair a nationally competitive baseball program with them, that's everything they're looking for. Right. Then there's the challenge of, 
everybody's making the early commitments now. MIT is never going to go there. MIT is just not going to let sophomores commit to MIT. It's just, no, yeah, it's just yeah. not going to happen. It won't happen in my lifetime. So they have to wait a little bit longer, and you have to sell the wait a little bit. And it is worth the wait for those that it works out for. And then for those that it doesn't work out for, they're such good students that their plan B is usually better than everybody else's plan A. Right. So that's that's kind of the sell. And then we were fortunate that the recruiting world changed. There were all these showcases and camps for the academic student-athletes, so we were able to travel. We went to Stanford's camps all the time. I mean, I, I was spending three, four weeks at a time in California chasing our guys. Showball did a really good job of putting together their academic stuff. They come to Boston now, MIT, and Tufts host them when they come out here. So the, they've it got easier just because there was more places to fish where the fish were. But the kids that, that we had were really, really special. Just from a time management standpoint, to, to be a straight-A student and to be a, a borderline Division One athlete, which I think to compete in the new MAC and the higher ends of the Division Three, that's that's what you got to be. And we were fortunate to find a whole bunch of them, and it, it was it was a great run. And and I learned a lot doing what I did at MIT, and then from our rivalries with Wheaton and Babson and those games that meant so much, and then playing Tufts and playing all the local D threes. It was really really good baseball all the time. Yeah, I would imagine it, that's not a hard group to motivate guys who are able to get in academically to MIT and they want to play a, a sport there as well. That's probably a motivated group of people. The problem would be the workload. Like, are they able to commit so much energy and effort into their athletic career as maybe some other schools? Did you find that it was a, a challenge to motivate those guys or were they pretty pretty ready to go? I'm a pretty fiery guy. I think our, our alums would say that they they got a couple speeches. <laughs> yeah. Coach Barlow would talk about it a lot. They they need to cross Mass Ave and, and leave the academics behind. Yeah. And both directions. You can't be worrying about the game that day when you're in chemistry class at 10 a.m. at MIT. You're going to get crushed in, in chemistry class. Right. And if you're worrying about the chemistry exam that's two days away and Wheaton's rolling out an arm that's 89-91 with a slider, well, you're going to get crushed that day. So right. yeah. the more you, But if you compartmentalize, you have the ability to handle both. Like You've proven that you're an, a student that can handle the, that workload. And we know you're an athlete that's good enough to handle this competitive environment. We just have to make sure that we separate it. And some do it better than others, and, and some figure it out earlier than others. And I wish I could write a book and say, hey, if you do these six things as a freshman at MIT, you'll be successful. But I don't know that what all six of those are, and, and no, neither do any of the other 33 sports coaches that are there. Nobody's got the, the whole thing figured out. Yeah. And now you had a great playing career. Your uh, coaching experience, you also coached at UMass Boston, Salem, Commun Salem Community College, and Harvard. But you also played where, in your playing career. Where, where did you play in college? I started at Ithaca College in New York and transferred home, finished at UMass Boston under Coach Betancourt. And, and oh, that's okay. Where I, that's when I started my college career was with him coaching. And you uh, played professionally for a little while, too? Or? I did not play professionally. You did not? Okay. Would have been nice. Yeah. <laughs> now, when did you what? When did you get inspired to uh, go into coaching? Like, did you know when you were playing that that was what you were going to want to do afterwards? I come from a family of teachers, and I think I knew that I'd end up on the education side somewhere. And I've, I've been fortunate that baseball's kind of been the vehicle for me to be an educator. And then when I was finishing school, Mark took a chance on me and, and needed an assistant, and I started with him. And that second summer. Chip Forrest was looking for a pitching coach in the NECBL, and he had called Mark Betancourt, and, and Mark says, I can't do it. He was in the police academy at the time before, and you know, now he's a Linfield cop and the PBD high coach and football and baseball. Oh, yeah. And he goes, but I got a young guy, Todd. I think you'd like him. I think you guys would get along. And, and Chip had recruited me when he was at Stonehill at the time, 
And he goes, oh, I remember him. He goes, all right, he's hired. So, bam, now I'm in the NACBL. And that kind of opened up a world of opportunity. I went down to, to JUCO for a couple of years, and that was that's where I really learned to recruit because it was recruiting in both directions. So you were bringing players in, you were getting players out. Yeah. So my network started to expand. And then that was good for a little while. They had some budget cuts. I decided I wasn't going back the day I wasn't decided I wasn't going back. Joe Walsh walked into our locker room at Mill City and I had known him from doing his summer camps and stuff. And I said, Hey, if you hear of anything, I'm looking. And this was the summer of 05. And he goes, Oh, I got a spot. You just come with me. And yeah. so that's how I got hired at Harvard. So I went from Salem Community College to Harvard in, in one day. Wow. Uh, it was before all the camps and circuits ma- broke out. So the volunteer assistant at Harvard did not make a lot of money in 06 and 07. Um, but it was a great experience. I was with some just unbelievable guys there. Morgan Brown was our first captain, and Morgan's still in baseball. He's come back and helped out at Harvard. He's, he's done some great things now with the, the Lake Monsters up in Vermont. Sean Havlin was our best pitcher there, and obviously Sean and I are still in touch, and he'll be speaking at our event. So that was that was kind of great preparation for when the spot opened up at MIT. And um, Coach Barlow, Coach Forrest, Coach Walsh, they were the three assistants in Wareham under Don Reed for seven or eight years together. So they were kind of a Don Reed's coaching tree, and I guess I'm a branch off of that. And they speak highly of Don. I've only been able to meet him a couple of times, but they had Berkman and Zito and all, Carlos Pena and all those great players that Wareham had in the late 90s. And then I got my chance to go down there in the summer of 07. Yeah. And we had Wade Miley and Dallas Keuchel and, and some really good players down there. So I was very fortunate with that experience. And then MIT was right place, right time. It was it was the perfect place for me at that stage of my career. And, and that's that experience in the New Mac and kind of getting a program over the hump that hadn't been to an NCAA tournament in 37 years. And we went five times in 11 years and got to a regional final and nationally ranked a couple times. And Austin Flair and his whole story with being an eighth rounder at MIT. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we don't – I mean, as far as we can tell, a, a New England D3 hitter hasn't gone higher than the eighth round going back to the 80s. We have we tried to find one, but – if anybody has one, you can email me and tell me I'm wrong. But uh, yeah. we looked for a long way. No, I can't think of one. All right, good deal. Well, Todd, are you up for doing our three down three? Th- excuse me, three up, three down segment. Where whichever we're... way you want to go, you want to yeah. go down first or you want to go up first? Let's let's do it. Nice. Well, here's here's our producer David Yaz with the three up, three down segment. Three up, three down. Yes. Producer Dave, welcome back to Three Up, Three Down, and thank you, brave gentlemen, for participating today. Three questions about baseball. Simple as that. Todd's our guest, so he gets to go first. He looks a little nervous. No, he doesn't. He looks fine. All right, so first question. It's all, They're all about pitching, so on point, of course. First question is about the so-called EFIS pitch, the big lob pitch that has been employed over the years by pitchers, of course, Thought to be invented by Rip Sewell in the 40s or whatever. But every once in a while, you see a pitcher throw that incredible lob pitch to try to throw batters off balance. It's a novelty. It's weird. It's always interesting when you see it. And yet, you barely ever see it. So I'm wondering if you have a thought, Todd. What? Why don't we see that, that pitch more often? I would say it's hard to throw a five-ounce baseball 60 feet in the air and 60 feet forward and have it land in a strike zone. <laughs> And therefore, it's easier to throw it down in a straight line <laughs> yes. rather than the lob. Do you think that's why? Uh, and, and part of it's probably ego and moxie and, and that yeah. sort of stuff that people don't want. It, it takes probably a, a different thinker, like a, a Billy doing it in the World Series, somebody that's right. a, a little bit aloof. But maybe, you know, in the modern times with more position players pitching, with uh, the more we see of that, maybe it'll yeah. start to make a, a slight rally. Yeah, my research revealed that 
Brock Holt did it when he was on the mound during some weird mop-up duty and threw the slowest pitch in baseball history for a strike. It was like 31 miles an hour. Uh, Dan, your thoughts on the EFIS? I like the idea that the ego gets in the way because, like, in the NBA, they always say Shaq or some of these other guys that shoot less than 50% from the line. If they shot underhand, they would shoot up much higher percentage, but they don't do it because of their egos. I also think it's just too slow. Like a change up when you're, th- everybody's throwing 100 miles an hour. Mm-hmm. And now if you throw the EFIS, like you actually have time to sit back and be like, all right, hold on a sec. I, I'm going to time this up and hit it as hard as I can R- rather than like a knuckleball or a curveball or a change up. I feel like you're sitting on that fastball. And by the time you realize what it is, you don't have time to kind of get yourself and your balance centered and, and get a good swing on it. So I almost think it's too slow to get yeah. to trick anybody it's with it. It's almost like you could swing twice on the same pitch, like, <laughs> yeah. like on a Bugs, yeah. Bugs Bunny pitch. Bugs Bunny, yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> absolutely. All right, next question, and uh, Dan, you get to go first on this one. So there's, in recent years, of course, a lot being made of sign stealing. We now have a, a different scandal of sorts in college football involving the same topic thanks to jim harbaugh but the most obvious recent example was the astros electronically stealing signs and banging the the garbage can to send the signal to the batter or what have you i'm i've, I've always been interested in why it, it's that a big a deal or is it that big a deal and i might point out that when bobby thompson hit his shot heard around the world the entire team later admitted that they were stealing signs using a a rifle a scope on a rifle from center field anyway here's what i want you get you to do dan tell me what's worse and there are four sins baseball sins i've placed on the monitor over here dan illegally stealing signals which we just talked about taking illegal peds corking a bat or pitches using illegal substances such as vaseline or rosin or whatever you want to put on the ball there your thoughts. All right. Corking bat and using illegal substances, I say, are equal because um, you're basically, you know, kind of gaming the equipment Tampering that you have. Equipment. Yeah. Yep. Stealing signs. Like when I was in Little League, if you were sitting on the bench, the coaches would be like, hey, look at the third base coach and try to figure out what the signs are. <laughs> right. So I don't have a problem with that. I guess it would probably be steroids, although like that was one of my favorite eras of baseball when <laughs> McGuire and Sosa and all those guys were hitting 70 every year. But I think it's probably the steroids. That's that's a pretty blatant decision to cheat. That's that's the worst, you think. And then you have a tie with the corking about in the substance and the yes. stealing sign. Okay. I, I, I like those choices. Todd, your thoughts? I would go the equipment change, number one, I think, because that, that fundamentally changes the game. The bat, uh, corking the bat, corking yeah. the bat, yep. or an illegal substance on the ball, and I would okay. I would lump them together. Oh, you too, would, okay, yep. yeah, you're you're fundamentally changing the game. Um, and like everything else, though, there's a little nuance to that, right? Because there's some guys that if a pitcher's erratic and he's the sunscreen's going to make him not dome you up, they're into that. So, yeah, like you can go to the rosin bag, you can go to your mouth, but like there are some things that are just off limits. It's kind of a fine line. Yeah, so like where does that get cut? I would probably put PEDs next. I think. That's a challenging era. I grew up in that age, and I didn't take PEDs because I wasn't I wasn't a cycle of steroids away from being a, 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 a big <laughs> yeah. leaguer. But I mean, I I don't know if nineteen year old me would have said no. If that's the difference between you playing ten years in the big leagues and not, yeah. how many of us would have said no to that? And everybody thinks that it's steroids, but it was a whole lot of things. It was creatine. It was just it was a different culture back then. 
So I think a lot of those guys are getting blackballed at a level that's that's unbelievable. It's up there with gambling, and you know, mm-hmm. we let people back that have that are domestic abusers, and then mm-hmm. you know we don't have we don't have any grace for those people that that were just kind of keeping up with the guy in the locker next to his. So I, I think there's a little bit of room for grace there, but obviously there's there's a danger there in the message that we send to kids that, that we wanted the bodies to be healthy, and we see some of those guys breaking down and the, and the dangerous effects of that. But I, I think we give second chances to people that don't make as much sense as somebody that maybe took a pill that, that helped him get a little stronger. Mm-hmm. Especially, yeah, because it, it almost was like leveling the playing field back in those days because everybody was doing it, or maybe 50% of the people were taking uh, substances. Yeah, I'll take it one step further and say, wh- when is a, a rule not a rule? When it's never enforced. Yeah. And for the first several years of the what we now call the steroid era, Major League Baseball had no interest in enforcing any rules, and so if they're if they're not going to enforce it, it it's almost by proxy that it's understood that it that it's done. I think that's the way the players viewed it, and baseball has been deemed hypocritical. I think properly because that was McGuire and Sosa brought the popularity back to the sport, right? Yeah, and I mean McGuire, Sosa, and Bonds were not the only ones. No, you know yeah, I mean? so no question. Yeah. I, I think a lot of people's heroes were involved back then, and the, Major League Baseball has kind of picked and choose to not or just the culture around Major League Baseball has picked and choose who the villains are in that scenario. Absolutely, for as unlikable as Roger Clemens, Barry Bonds, and Alex Rodriguez are and were, and in varying degrees, they all were kind of hateable. They've been villainized to the to the to the mountaintops, and uh, and others haven't for whatever reason. But yeah, they're all doing it. All right, final question on three up, three down. And, Todd, you can start with this one. Who's the most intimidating pitcher you've ever witnessed, whether in person or on TV? And you can take this question in any direction, like uh, someone you saw personally or actually playing on the field or just someone you regard to be the most intimidating pitcher ever. Yeah, this one's easy for me. Um, Kevin McGlinchey from from Malden um, made it to the big leagues, and, and he figured out how to throw it over, the white thing over the white thing. Mm-hmm. But at 18 years old, he had very little concept of how to do that. And he was mid-'90s, and you didn't see it very often back then. And mm-hmm. we we had good pitchers around us, but he was, he was three, four miles an hour harder than all of them and just really no idea where it was going. And you just couldn't get comfortable in the box against him. So you yeah. stood in against him. Yeah, he was he was my year in high school, um, the glory days of Massachusetts high school. There was a lot of good players around though. Carlos Pena was around at that time. Sean McGowan was a teammate of mine in high school as a third round pick, and Spinelli and Revere and mm-hmm. and McGlinchey made it to the bigs out of Adam Alden. And and to his credit, his command just kept getting better. And I, I I think he was on the World Series winner over there. But I know he went out and worked with Coach Thurston out in Western Mass and and did a really good job and made the neighborhood proud. So how'd you but, do against him? Not good. He, he, he my, I mean, modern metrics might be okay because I'm sure he walked me a couple times. And he, okay, definitely, so and, he definitely, and he definitely hit me once, but I don't remember getting any hits. So <laughs> the on base percentage has got to be pretty good. Dan, most um, intimidating pitcher. Most intimidating I've probably seen on TV would be Randy Johnson because mm-hmm. he kind of had that wild, you don't know where it's going all the time. And he was so big. I think he was like 6'8, six, 6'9. Six, mm-hmm. So, and he was left handed. So it was just. It, you, I remember John Cruck getting up against him in the All Star game, putting his helmet on backwards because he was no like, part of it. "Yeah." In person, like I used to cover the Red Sox a little bit in my previous job, and Jonathan Papelbon, like when you were in the clubhouse with him before or after games, like he could just kind of start going at a member of the media, like either in a teasing way or sometimes even in a mean way. Where like I was always a little in- intimidated by that. Like mm-hmm. I don't want to be. 
his the guy he's going at after this outing today if he's if he screws up so he was always like the most intimidating to interview but to face i would say randy johnson mm. interesting you mentioned bill lee earlier todd my my dad's a longtime baseball guy former executive at the cape cod baseball league but he tells a story about how bill lee was doing a charity game and something pissed lee off maybe he got called out on strikes when he was batting in this charity game and so he hadn't even been scheduled to pitch, but he declared he was going to take them on. This is Bill Lee, probably about age 50, so probably 10 years retired or more. And my dad said it was the most uncomfortable feeling in the <laughs> on the ballpark. It's supposed to be a charity game. Lee comes in, he starts throwing what looks like it, maybe he's throwing 90 at, at age 50, but it looks to be about 100 compared to what was going on. <laughs> so you didn't, he didn't throw any ephesus that day. At any rate, you both have done uh, very well in, in three up, three down. We congratulate you. And where's the round? Okay, round of applause. Crowd is on their feet. I will tell you a Bill Lee story. He did the home sure. run derby in the NECBL All-Star game. It's had to be 04, 05 up in Montpelier. And my mom was still alive at the time, and she had been – he was her favorite in the 70s. My, they, my mom and dad had season tickets before I came along, and they, she just loved him. So I go up, and I got my Polaroid disposable camera, and I'm going to get a picture with Billy. And he takes his first round of BP, and he comes out, and he goes, good, I didn't waste my time. At least there's a crowd here. And no. I, I fire the thing off the wall, and I'm pissed off. And I've been pissed off. I've been mad at Billy for like 18 years. <laughs> yeah. Two months ago, went to the, went to the Bruins, and we were out having a beer before the game, and Tony Canigliero's niece was our bartender. And mm, she wow. she's like, oh, you're a baseball guy. And we start chatting. And she's showing us all the pictures and everything and says, Billy does not miss a single fundraiser that's associated with all the foundations. Oh, so oh, wow. It completely flipped it in my head. So I doubt Billy is listening. But, Bill, that stuff's more important than a round of BP in Vermont. So mm. in my head, it all is forgiven. But awesome that he's a guy that shows up for one of his former teammates 30 years later. I thought that was really, really cool to hear that story. Yeah, oh, for sure. Well, even my story, much as he may have injured several people in the game, <laughs> it, it was for charity. So, oh, yeah. so we'll forgive you, uh, Bill Lee. Thank you. Uh, yeah, back to you, Dan, to wrap things up. All right. Thanks to Todd Carroll for joining us on the Base Path Podcast. Reach out if you're interested in attending the Boston Pitching Congress. Rate, review, subscribe to the Base Path Podcast on your preferred platform. Thanks to our producer, David Yaz. The Base Path Podcast is a Siemens Media production.